I want to offer an opportunity for peace by creating a little conflict, safe conflict, at least I hope. Before we talk about peace, I want to talk about Christmas movies, particularly your favorite Christmas movies. But in order to avoid as much conflict as possible, we have to answer the question, what makes a movie a Christmas movie? For example, what makes Die Hard more of a Christmas movie than, say, White Christmas? Ah, you see what I did there? Remember, this sermon today is about peace. There are all kinds of considerations to help us answer the question of what makes a movie a Christmas movie. How about only movies that were released at Christmas time? That seems pretty straightforward, and yet that would eliminate Miracle on 34th Street, which was released in the summer. And it would include Lord of the Rings, which some of you would be okay with. I'm old enough to remember movie theaters. They were like giant living rooms with TV screens as large as your house, mountains of popcorn and rivers of soda. Do you remember movie theaters? Some of the best Christmas memories I had was watching Lord of the Rings with my extended family. But does being released at Christmas make the Lord of the Ring movies Christmas movies? Probably not. Even if the films contain loads of elves, an old man with a white beard, and lots of gift-giving. How about films featuring Christmas music? Well, that's the category that places Die Hard with three Christmas songs over White Christmas that only features one Christmas song, maybe two if you're generous. Well, what if we defined a Christmas movie by whether, it's, whether or not its setting or its plot takes place during the Christmas season? Well, that's how movies like Gremlins and Edward Scissorhands, if you remember those, get added to the list. What then makes a movie a Christmas movie? If it offers a Christmas message or contains the Christmas spirit, and what do we mean by the Christmas spirit? That by the end, the antagonist's heart grows three sizes? Or that a father finally embraces his adult son who dresses like an elf after walking all the way from the North Pole to New York City? Perhaps that is the heart of our problem. We can't define Christmas movies because we're not sure what Christmas is all about. Is it about good cheer, belief in Santa, family, traditions, saving George Bailey and revitalizing Bedford Falls? Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas movies are all about? Lioness knows. And he takes over the stage to recite Luke chapter two in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. But if we stick to films that share an overtly Christian message, then our list of movies that are Christmas movies gets really, really short. Well, we probably won't find a definitive answer to the question of what makes a movie a Christmas movie. So without any rules, in just a moment, I want you to share with those who you came with or those who you are with at home what your top five Christmas movies are. Let me get us started. Here are mine. Number five would be Elf. Number four, It's a Wonderful Life. Number three, Charlie Brown Christmas. Number two, Home Alone. And my personal favorite, though many probably will disagree, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Now it's your turn. Have a chat with those you, you came with, your family or friends sitting next to you. And if you're at home, take just a minute or two and share what your, your favorite Christmas movies are.
If you're not sitting next to anyone, perhaps you can save your list for a conversation later today. Although we didn't bring peace, probably, into the Christmas movie Conflict, I want to introduce a new subcategory, the Advent movie. We are in the season of Advent, after all, preparing both for the retelling of the incarnation of Christ and Christ's second coming. One movie that might surprisingly help us celebrate Advent is Home Alone. At first glance, the plot seems to center on Kevin, a young boy left behind by his family who travels to France for Christmas as he attempts to outwit a tandem of robbers, Harry and Marv, the wet bandits, as they call themselves, while he is stuck home alone for Christmas. But there is more going on here than the elaborate booby traps that await the optimistic thieves. One of the themes of Advent is peace, and it is captured profoundly in a church scene in Home Alone. Alone for Christmas Eve, Chris, Kevin wanders into a local church as a children's choir rehearses O Holy Night. There he encounters his neighbor, Old Man Marley, if you remember him, rumored to be a serial killer named the South Bend Shovel Slayer. But after an unexpected pew conversation, Kevin and Marley exchange stories of regret and loss. And it turns out Kevin is not the only one home alone. Old Man Marley had come to hear his granddaughter sing during the rehearsal because he was not welcome to attend the actual Christmas Mass performance. You see, he is estranged from his son. Did you miss the gospel according to Home Alone? A church with stained glass windows depicting the arrival of Jesus, a prodigal father deciding to reconcile with his son, a prodigal son who wants to make things right with his family, neighborly love, a shared longing for God's peace, and the world to be put, be put back together again. While a choir sings a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices. From yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees, oh, hear the angel voices. It's all there. Between I made my family disappear and the tarantula on Marv's face. You don't have to believe in my made-up movie category, but I think Home Alone captures the longing of Advent. And with its intentional inclusion of O Holy Night, points toward a key moment in today's passage, the angels' voices. When we read Luke chapter 2, typically we see the shepherds. Today, let's see what the shepherds saw. When we read Luke chapter 2, typically we hear what the shepherds said. Today, let's hear what the shepherds heard. Through the eyes and the ears of the shepherds, let's pay attention to the angels. But first, let me confess that I often ignore the angels in the birth narratives of Jesus. I think it has something to do with my failed acting career as a kid. My childhood Christmas play casting opportunities were disappointing, to say the least. One year in elementary, I was given the part of Christmas tree. Not a talking Christmas tree. I wasn't a Christmas tree that had some important symbolic moment in the play. I literally stood on the stage wearing a cardboard cutout 
of a Christmas tree with a hole punched out for my face and a star on top. No lines, no movement, just a human prop. To make matters worse, I had to put on green tights. At least they could have given me real glowing lights. Why was I needed for a personified Christmas tree when an actual Christmas tree would suffice is beyond me. Perhaps it was a budgetary consideration. Perhaps I was the last to find a role for the play and they made one up. Or maybe it was just some director's idea of cute. I don't know. In another year, to my great disappointment, I was cast as an angel. Not that there's anything wrong with being an angel in a Christmas play. Who doesn't want to wear a circle of garland taped to your hair? But I, at the time, was interested in the roles that had the best props. The wise men got crowns and presents. The shepherds had staves, which was very much like a weapon to my juvenile mind. But I, that year, was an angel. Perhaps due to this childhood disappointment, or more likely, from a lack of imagination, I often skip over the angel scenes in the Bible. Perhaps you're like me. Very few of us, if any, would claim to have seen an angel, though we may have had encounters that left us wondering if we entertained them unknowingly. Because we don't have a lot of experiences with angels, our brains don't register any association when we read about them. We either picture pop culture and Christmas pageant angels, or that part of the story remains blurry. But let's try to bring it into focus a bit today. In the scene, in the scene described for us, we find shepherds in a field guarding their sheep. But again, let's try to take their point of view. What do they see and hear? There is the smell and the noise of the sheep, the openness and chill of the night sky, the dirt and grass of the Bethlehem outskirts. Perhaps there is a campfire. We don't know for sure, but the shepherds may even have been sleeping. With their eyes closed, they would not have seen anything, just darkness. And then suddenly, as if Isaiah 9 came to life. Out of the darkness comes a great light, an angel of the Lord in front of them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory all around them, an announcement that calms not only their immediate fears, but enlivens their deepest hopes. A Savior, the Messiah, for all people, including them. The shepherds start to get up, for they know what to do when an angel shows up, exactly what they tell you to do, just like their ancestors of the Old Testament did. Something else happens. And again, don't rush past this part of the story because it doesn't register with your imagination. It says, suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God. Now, this is the kind of angel I would have liked to enact in the Christmas play as a child. I bet those angels had cool props. We are interested here in what the shepherds see and hear. And what they see and hear is the skies ripped open and heaven shout. Not just one angel. For a brief moment, the shepherds see into God's dimension. 
For a short time, a window is opened and the lights and sounds of heaven come bursting into earth. And this is what the shepherds hear, an otherworldly symphony of sound, the original rendition of an old holy night sung by an orchestra that will never be matched, proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. This is what the shepherds see and hear. As incredible as this sighting is, it's only a preview. As beautiful as this musical announcement is, it's only the prelude. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's linger here at the advent of Advent, at the start of the arrival, with the announcement from the angels, and with one word in particular, peace. The word that the angel utters here in Luke 2 is irene, and its meaning is connected to the Hebrew equivalent, shalom. Shalom is a bigger, more beautiful reality than the meaning usually associated with the common English word peace. One scholar calls shalom the flourishing of life for all people in every community and in all of creation. Another, every creature in community with every other, living in harmony and security toward the joy and well-being of all. Or simply put, shalom is the way God designed the universe to be. The good news of Advent, foretold in Isaiah's poetry, and found in the angel's announcement to the shepherds is not a passive peace or a shallow or a shallow shalom, but nothing short of the full redemption of all humanity, reconciled to God and one another, and the restoration of all things. Shalom is God's ultimate justice. While we might settle for an absence of conflict in our small corner of the universe, or just a little peace of mind. God wants to give us peace on earth. Is your picture of peace as big as God's dream of shalom? Chances are, if you're like me, you've got to see and hear it to believe it. So let's take one more look at what the shepherds witnessed in Luke chapter 2. I catch at least seven things that would have stretched their view of peace towards God's dream of shalom. And don't worry, you don't have to remember all seven of them. And I will go through them quickly. Number one, peace requires a greater imagination. The angel, the glory of God, heaven revealed. The shepherd's epiphany was intended to expand their hearts and minds to welcome a peace that was bigger and better than anything they could have previously imagined. God was giving them a new picture of shalom. Number two, peace comes from the outside. Peace is an advent. It's an arrival. It is a gift to be received and shared, but we can't make it on our own. Not even the angels could bring peace. The best they could do is announce it. Shalom comes from God. I find relief in that. Though I am called to participate in peacemaking, the burden of peace is God's. Number three, peace in Luke chapter two is a person. 
An announcement is not the thing itself. It points towards the thing. And this announcement, the greatest of them all, tells of a baby born in Bethlehem. The peace of God has a name, and it's Jesus. The embodiment of shalom has come to live among us. If we are going to have peace, we'll have to find it wrapped in cloth, lying in a manger. Number four, peace grows. Peace on earth came to the shepherds in the form of a baby. What a peculiar strategy. In how many problem-solving situations, counseling sessions, or peace talks, does anyone say, bring in the baby? Or, have you thought about having a baby? And yet, this was God's plan for peace. And as Jesus grew, peace grows. It takes time. Think about the shepherds. The peace on earth promised to them wasn't immediate. Did they get to see the peace on earth that Jesus would fulfill some 30 years later? On the night of the announcement, shalom had begun, but it was not finished. Perhaps the peace you long for or are working towards is somewhere between announcement and fulfillment. Hang on because peace takes time. It grows. Number five, peace is messy. Again, the peculiar peace of God first comes to us in the form of a baby. If you've been around a newborn baby, it's not always peaceful. In fact, it's noisy and messy. It will require all of your energy. We are to join God's work of peacemaking. It's going to be messy and at times difficult. The disciples themselves had to learn peace on earth and often made a mess of it. Peace can be messy, so messy that at times it feels like conflict. But don't lose heart. It's a beautiful mess. Number six, peace is dangerous. This shalom in the form of a baby would very quickly be endangered as King Herod sought to destroy Jesus. And if we fast forward to Jesus's ministry of shalom, some didn't want the peace of God and even opposed it, eventually seeking to end it. On Christmas Day in 1863, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, with both both personal loss and a civil war in the background, wrote the poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Here are a few lines that capture the sometimes dangerous nature of peace. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Peace may be dangerous, the work of justice weary, but take heart, Jesus himself is our peace. Through his own body on the cross, he accomplished it. Number seven, lastly, peace is for all. God's dream of shalom was revealed to the shepherds 
as good news that will bring great joy to all people. There are no separate pieces, as one theologian puts it. If I have peace, but you, my neighbor, do not, that's not shalom. That's injustice. Peace without love for neighbor is privilege. Yes, God wants to bring peace to your household, but he also wants shalom for your community, for the whole world. In light of the good news of Advent, in light of the fact that the first recipients of peace on earth were not powerful and privileged, but those who were marginalized like the shepherds, in light of that, we must ask ourselves, do we love our peace more than we love our neighbors? If so, it's time to receive God's shalom. It's time to see and hear what the shepherds saw and heard. Let us not settle for the absence of conflict in our small corner of the world or just a little peace of mind. Let's go after peace on earth, God's dream for all creation. Peace requires a greater imagination. Peace comes from the outside. Peace is a person. Peace grows. Peace is messy, sometimes even dangerous. And peace is for all. The good news of Advent is that peace is possible. And not just possible, peace is here. Peace is available anywhere you are gathered this morning. Hear these encouraging words from Colossians chapter 3, beginning with verse 12. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. For as members of one body, you are called to live in peace. When we allow Christ's peace to rule in our hearts, we become like Jesus, mobile embodiments of God's shalom, displaying peace on earth wherever we are sent by God. If you're gathered at home online, we have some discussion questions that you can share with a small group of people that you're with. Or if you're here in person and you plan to talk with your family or who you're with about the service afterwards, we have some questions at collegewest.com for you to, to think about. Before we go this morning, I want us just to spend a moment of quiet reflection on this one question. And that is, does the peace of God rule in your heart today? Does the peace of God rule in your heart today? Perhaps in this moment, there's a situation where you need God's peace to come. Or perhaps this morning, hearing God's word has caused you to imagine a bigger peace than you had or knew before you arrived this morning. Wherever you might be, take a moment to reflect. Does the peace of God rule in your heart today?